Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Thanks for listening to the BreastCancer.org podcast. Our guest is Christine Hodgton, who was diagnosed with de novo metastatic breast cancer in April 2015 and became heavily involved in the metastatic community after attending a Metaviver advocacy event on Capitol Hill to push for more research funding for metastatic breast cancer. Christine volunteers with a number of breast cancer organizations, including Living Beyond Breast Cancer, Metaviver, and the Tiger Lily Foundation. She also has contributed articles and blogs to organizations to raise awareness of metastatic breast cancer and serves as a peer mentor for the Young Survival Coalition. Before she was diagnosed, Christine loved to travel and was a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala from 2011 to 2013. When she returned, she worked as a conservation biologist to save habitat for endangered species. Now Christine is using her science background to create an open access online forum that provides the most recent and scientifically accurate information about breast cancer and its treatments, including metastatic breast cancer clinical trials and drugs and therapies in the pipeline. She also has created a pilot program pairing researchers with patient advocates at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is what we're going to talk about during this podcast. Christine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about this program. Uh, But to start, just so everyone um, knows a little bit about you, could you talk about, if you're comfortable, talk about your diagnosis and treatment um, from what I understand you found two breast lumps yourself? And I'm also wondering if you had a family history of breast cancer. Yeah, um, so actually I do not have any family history of breast cancer. We do have a lot of cancer in the family, but I did find the two lumps on my own, and uh, which is often the case with younger breast cancer patients. I was 34 at the time. My doctor said I was fine. <laughs> he said, you know, actually, these aren't worrisome. You're too young to have cancer and you have no history. So, you know, come back in a couple of months if they haven't gone away. So that's what I did. I did go back, and this time he was a little more concerned and said, you know, I think we should just take these out, which, again, is not really standard of care. Typically, you would do a needle biopsy, but we did an excisional biopsy, which was kind of like a, I mean, it was a surgery, and I had to go under, and, you know, it was almost like a lumpectomy, but we didn't get clear margins. And so we did learn after this biopsy that it was indeed breast cancer. So, and it is often the case with the beginning of a diagnosis, there's just so many unknowns and it was very nerve wracking to try to understand what was happening and what my body, you know, I felt like my body was betraying me. Um, And yeah, it just was like, oh my gosh, how can I have cancer at 34? And we learned like the news just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And we learned not only did I have breast cancer, but the PET scan picked up thyroid cancer as well. And then the final part of my diagnosis was a lung biopsy, which did collapse my lung and put me in the hospital for about a week, delaying my chemo. That 
biopsy actually showed that the tiny six millimeter lesion in my lung was in fact uh, HER2 positive breast cancer. So that biopsy actually gave me the stage four diagnosis. So I was kind of facing a double cancer diagnosis, one of which was metastatic. So it was terrifying to say the least. I can't even imagine. And what can you sort of give me an idea? What was the time frame? Does this all happen in a couple months? Was it over longer? Yeah, it it really happened probably, I, I think it was in the biopsy. The first biopsy I had was April 7th of 2015, and I was starting chemo by early May. So it was really like less than a month's time that I got all of this information. And, um, you know, I was working full-time, as you mentioned in my intro, I was a conservation biologist. I was the director of programs. And so I was really quite busy and, and living a full, you know, full life. And I actually had to cancel a trip to Peru that was planned. (laughs) A lot of trips had to be canceled. That was the first of many, but yeah, just totally your whole life gets turned upside down. And we had really just kind of recovered from losing my father to a rare type of cancer um, six years prior. And we had all, you know, we were finally starting to have good news where my brother got engaged. My mom was now in a happy relationship after losing her husband and I got this great job. And so it's just like, we had like, just, that's just how life works, I guess, when everything, everything seems to be going well and then something throws a wrench into it. So that was, yeah, that was 2015 was kind of a blur, but I did endure, you know, about four months of chemotherapy along with Herceptin and Progetta to hit the HER2. And at the end of those four months, I was basically NED, no evidence of disease. I underwent another lumpectomy, a real one this time, which did get clear margins. And after that, they just said, okay, we're going to just continue on. You know, when you're metastatic, you don't ever actually stop treatment. So I still, I mean, I've been getting Herceptin and Progetta infusions every three weeks for the last four and a half years now. And I do take tamoxifen as well. So to because I also was both ER and PR positive, hormone receptor positive. So I take tamoxifen to hit another target. And uh, yeah, I've just been kind of living my life trying to be grateful for this. I mean, we feel like this is bonus time, you know, when you when you are faced with a diagnosis like this and, and you live, it's, it's like, okay, <laughs> this is extra time and I better do something good with it. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that you have no evidence of disease. That's Wonderful. I'm curious too. Now you mentioned thyroid cancer. How did that fit into everything? Was that sort of role the the chemotherapy hit that as well, or do you have to do extra treatment for that? Yeah. So that is actually it's like completely separate cancer, and I had a whole other set of doctors to to manage that. And the the treatment for that was just a thyroidectomy. So because I like efficiency, I actually did my lumpectomy and thyroidectomy at the same time. <laughs> So (laughs) I just thought, let's just do one surgery. And I had to coordinate my breast surgeon and my thyroid surgeon and see if they were on board. And they said, okay, you know, it was a little tough, rough recovery there because, you know, my neck was very sore and, you know, the lumpectomy was actually pretty, I had several complications from that as 
as well, but I'm still glad I got everything over with in one shot. And um, I just continue now with, you know, regular thyroid replacement medications. So, um, but it has its own set of challenges. Sometimes, you know, when I have side effects or symptoms, I really have to kind of go through my checklist. Like, is this thyroid cancer? Is this breast cancer? Am I just getting old? You know, I'm almost 40 now. So it's like, am I, is this just part of, you know, my friends that don't have cancer complain about some of the same things I complain about? So it's sometimes hard to parse out what, where the symptoms are coming from. But yeah, I feel very lucky, like a cat with nine lives, really. It's like, okay, <laughs> pretty amazing ordeal to go through. And then really, when you look at me now, I just look like a normal patient you know, or person, not a patient. And, um, you know, that's often a, a common mistake people make is that they say, oh, you don't look sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, actually, there's a lot going on with me. I mean, I'm stable right now. But yes, I have a life-threatening disease, as well as a chronic one with the thyroid cancer. Right. You're kind of like what people talk about ducks, where they look so calm and serene on the surface, but then below the water, the feet are paddling crazily to to keep up and keep everything going. Yes. And if you know me, you know, I'm very energetic. (laughs) So I always, I often am moving very quickly. (laughs) Well, that's good. Um, I'm curious, you, you know, you had a couple diagnoses. How do you think that changed, they changed you as a person? Have, you know, obviously your your life has changed as you you talked about, but do you feel like you you changed as a person at all? Oh my gosh, yes. So actually, you know, cancer didn't even have to affect me to make a change. That you know, losing my father to cancer really put everything in perspective. And in fact, you mentioned I had done the Peace Corps. Well, I had been afraid to do Peace Corps for many years. I wanted to do it and I was terrified. I thought, I don't know if I can handle it. It seems really hard. You have to live in a developing country for two plus years and, you know, oftentimes speaking a different language. And so it was just a very daunting thing for me, even though I thought it would be really good for me. And when my dad died, I realized, okay, life is short and I don't want to have any regrets and I'm going to do it. So I actually applied like within a month and the truth is they said you're going to have to wait one year and apparently a lot of people a lot of people have that you know feeling that they're like oh I'm going to do the Peace Corps now (laughs) so they actually made me wait a year and then I mean like to the day I was like right back in the Peace Corps office saying like no I'm really I'm really ready to go I'm not just doing this because of the trauma I experienced and trying to run away I'm doing this because it's something I really want So it kind of gave me almost like no fear, you know, where I just, I really, you know, I'm I'm really able to to like look at it and say, look, you only have this one life. So you might as well do the things you want to do. And my diagnosis kind of just sharpened that focus a little bit. I already had it from losing my dad. But then with my diagnosis, it became the present became even more important to me. And so I'm one of these people that now, I, I mean, I used to be anxious and worry about the future and wonder, you know, what am I going to be doing next year? And now I really can't think that far ahead, I really focus like maybe in the month that I'm in. And, you know, I can't, I can't go too far ahead because I don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. My cancer could progress at any time. You know, it's just, I just have to be prepared for that. But in the moment, if I'm feeling good that day, then I have to take advantage. That makes complete sense. Now, besides your work to increase funding for research on metastatic breast cancer. You're also very, very passionate about helping people who've been diagnosed 
educate themselves about the disease and, and keep up with the latest research. And I know from talking to some other folks who've been diagnosed, this, this can be overwhelming because there's research reports coming out all the time. Sometimes you hear about them in the popular media and they sound amazing, but then when you kind of dig in, you realize it's a phase one study and we may not see anything for people for 10 years. So how do you keep up with all this and and how do you keep yourself on an an even keel because sometimes like oh this sounds great oh no it's not great or or, oh this sounds not so great but oh maybe there's some encouragement there so how do you do that yeah really good question i am very overworked i will say that (laughs) (laughs) i don't sleep that much because there's just so much information out there and you know i i started just kind of looking you know on on the internet like let's just see what's out there and see whatever the first articles that pop up and then i started you know learning about other resources there's so many now you know and and they offer webinars and so i can i used to listen to a lot of webinars and even from those i would get more ideas of resources so i kind of started at that with the with the webinar side of things where it's really broken down the science was really broken down in a way that you know is very understandable but then i just kind I started doing my own research where I, I mean, I can tell you some of the, some of the resources I use, like Science Daily is, I get an email almost, I think it's every day mm-hmm. um, with something related to breast cancer. And oftentimes, you know, in the sort of layman type articles, they will have the actual source of the, whatever study they were talking about. And mm-hmm. so what I started to do was I went from kind of reading these layman articles to actually reading the scientific articles. And then I saw, okay, there was a few journals that were always publishing about breast cancer. And now I subscribe to the, a lot of these are free subscriptions. Sometimes the journals are not open access, but a lot of them are. And so, you know, I try to just keep up with, I really try to read the scientific articles because I am very wary of some of these, like sometimes these headlines, you know, get really, like you said, it can be oftentimes it's not even a phase one study. It's a preclinical, you know, study where it's in mice and not even in humans. So you have to be very careful about that. But yeah, there's a ton of resources out there and and they're not always patient friendly, which mm-hmm. is why I created my website because I thought, well, and I have a science background and even for me, it's still kind of overwhelming, but, you know, I've been able to, now I've gotten really into it and I can read these articles pretty quickly and get really good information. And what I do is I just, I created a website so that people can, can go there and it's kind of a one-stop shop. <laughs> you know, it covers like research articles. I have an, a calendar of events that are with metastatic breast cancer specific like webinars or conferences. And then I also have a clinical trial searchable database on my website. So it's really, I just tried to make, I'm trying to make it easy for people because it's already overwhelming with the diagnosis on its own. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky enough to survive all your treatments and get through it, you kind of just want to know what's out there, what's next, what can I do, what's in the pipeline so that I can be prepared if I do have progression. So I think we can do better with educating advocates. You know, research advocacy is is a really important tool. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of programs out there for research advocacy, but it's getting, you know, I think that there are more and more options. And I'll just plug Project LEAD is an excellent program for, you know, if you kind of have like a basic knowledge and you're, you're interested in learning a little bit more about the breast science behind breast cancer, it's an excellent program. And there are several others as well. 
Okay. Now, before we go on to your San Antonio program, uh, can you tell us the uh, address of your website in case people want to go there? Oh, sure. I forgot to do that. I'm not very good at self-marketing. <laughs> um, the address is thestormwriters.org. And it's kind of a nod to my father because he loves The Doors. It was his favorite band. And Riders on the Storm was one of his favorite songs. So I was trying to incorporate him. I always try to try to, he, he kind of still guides me in my advocacy work. It's, it's really wonderful. And so thestormwriters.org is the website. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's talk about this program at San Antonio. It sounds really interesting to me. And you're, you're pairing researchers and patient advocates. And so give me some background. How did this all get started? I, I, I can guess it came sure. out of your thirst for knowledge, but I'd like to hear you say it. <laughs> Well, actually, it started last year. Last year's San Antonio conference, and a dear friend of mine, also a metastatic breast cancer patient, very interested in the science but doesn't have a science background, she had asked a cancer researcher to walk through the posters with her. And from that experience, we we kind of just kept building off of that. It was so successful. We started choosing posters and doing webinars with this researcher. And people were very interested, but there was no real formal program. And we were just kind of doing it on the fly. Like we'd find a research article or a poster and say, hey, can we can we put together a webinar and you go through the science with us? <laughs> so we started doing that. And then I went to ASCO this past June and the same cancer researcher was with me walking through posters just by happenstance. We weren't, we didn't plan it. We just kind of wandered together and it was awesome because <laughs> she was able to explain things to me that I just didn't, you know, for example, survivorship curve. We walked by a poster and she goes, oh, that's a beautiful curve. And I said, how do you know that so fast? How did you know that just by looking? I don't understand. And, you know, she kind of explained to me, well, when the lines are really close together, there's not much of a difference when they're really far apart. It's a big difference. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just like very simple, right. basic science information. And um, what was neat is that I was actually able to educate her about breast cancer specific drugs, for example, and and things like that, because she's not a breast cancer researcher, not breast cancer specific. So um, we kind of both felt like, hey, this is a cool learning experience for both of us. And we tweeted about it because we thought, well, let's just tweet and see what happens. And we got so much response. <laughs> In fact, people were messaging me, asking me where they can sign up for the program, even though it was not a program. So we thought, all right, we, we have enough interest. Let's Let's run with this. So uh, we spent most of the summer really working with the San Antonio Breast Cancer Board and also with the Alamo Breast Cancer Foundation. They provide travel scholarships and a wonderful advocacy program for people who attend San Antonio. And we worked with them to develop a proposal and they approved it. And so we're going to be piloting this program in December and it's actually going to be, the way it's going to be set up is we're going to have very small groups. We want this to be really small groups, and we want it to be advocates that are actually new to this world of advocacy, because we really want to help patient advocates who, we don't want them to feel overwhelmed in San Antonio. We want sure. them, and it can be very overwhelming. So we want to kind of help them break down the science, make sure they understand and, and just make them a little more confident when they actually are walking through posters, either at this conference or future conferences. And so it will compri be comprised of maybe two to three advocates that are new, 
one patient advocate that's kind of a veteran. Um, they'll be the mentor and then a science expert. And we named the program GRASP, which stands for Guiding Researchers and Advocates to Scientific Partnerships. And um, the truth is it doesn't have to be a researcher. It just We just want somebody like from the science and or medical communities that we have oncologists from the FDA that are very interested. They'll probably serve as our science experts and others from different professions like pathologists, and uh, we do have a few researchers. So they'll be kind of helping to, to, to translate is really what it is, translate that information in the posters. So we are probably going to do um, two to three walkthroughs during some of the morning sessions. And um, we already have a lot of interest. <laughs> In fact, we're already realizing that we are going to have to replicate this at other conferences because there's so much, so much interest in San Antonio, and this is supposed to be a small pilot program. And so I think we're we're already in in discussions with doing this at AACR, which uh, happens next year, as well as ASCO. So it's just a very um, scalable program and easily transferable. I mean, this doesn't have to be breast cancer. This can be any cancer. And and the feedback that we've gotten has been really, I think there's just people are really hungry for collaboration mm-hmm. and for learning. And so, um, you know, and I was very careful. I didn't want it to be like, ask the science expert, because the truth is, I don't think it's just about the advocates learning from the scientists, I think the scientists have a lot to learn from the advocates as well. They may be experts in their field, but we're experts in in being a patient and we're experts in advocacy. So I think it can be a nice um, synergistic partnership. Oh, yeah, it sounds fabulous. And uh, you said you have a lot of interest for the December program at San Antonio. Are, do you have all the people selected or can people still apply? How is How does that work? So I'm really glad you asked that question because what we're doing is we're actually going to partner with the Tiger Lily Foundation, and they are one of the leading organizations that work with uh, people of color and, and patients, especially in these underserved communities where there's a high incidence of breast cancer. Uh, they really work to address these health disparities. And um, the founder, Mae McCarmo, actually received multi-partner funding to send 22 African-American women from these underserved areas to San Antonio. So what we are planning to do is those participants from her scholarship are going to actually participate in the GRASP program as well. <laughs> so that was our, our first crop of people. Is that I have several other people that have sent me messages that I'm going to try to find ways to to get them involved as well. But hopefully we can make this a formal part of the Alamo Advocacy Program and we can make it bigger and we can make it something that everybody will be able to to join. But for now, I've just told people, just tell me if you're interested, send me a message. Um, You can send me a message through that website, uh, thestormriders.org. There's a contact page if you're interested. And if you are planning to be in San Antonio, I will find a way to get you in a group. (laughs) Great. That sounds fabulous. Now, I I can definitely see the uh, overwhelming interest from patient advocates. So I I hope you're prepared for that. Um, I I guess Mm -hmm. what I'm wondering, too, is what has the reaction been from researchers? I could see many of them being interested. I could see some people saying, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. Yeah, um, really, I mean, I'm only hearing from people that are interested. And okay. uh, I'm sure there's people that are like, yeah, I don't really want to be a teacher. I don't really want to do that, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, we're actually looking for people who, who are 
particularly good communicators. Sure. <laughs> so not everybody will fit this role of being a science expert. It's not just knowing the science, it's actually being able to communicate the science in a way that makes sense and that it's digestible for a, a patient that maybe doesn't have any medical or science background. So um, not every, it's not, you know, it's not for everybody, but what I've seen so far is that, you know, researchers are often asking patient advocates to, to you know, write a letter of recommendation for a grant that they're applying for. And, and so a lot of times, I, mean, I think every patient advocate knows this, it often happens at the very end of the process when you're not involved at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you learn about a, a grant and you have like one day to look everything over and then write a nice, a nice letter of support. But I, I think researchers are also eager to get patients involved earlier on. And, and um, I, I always say, like, we'll do the hard work for you. You know, we, we can help guide your research in a way that's going to have better outcomes for patients. And, you know, I think it's just, it's in everybody's best interest to involve us early on. So um, I, what I've heard from researchers is, well, how do I meet advocates? I don't even know where to meet them. And so this is one of those opportunities. If you want to, if you want to bring an advocate into your research, uh, this is a great way. I mean, there's people that are going to be coming from all over the country to San Antonio. So um, you can find, you know, you can easily meet up with with advocates there. And but this just gives a little bit more of a, it's a personalized discussion, and it's not so formal. Where you know, I often feel like I said before, we're kind of we, I mean, I personally suffer from the white coat syndrome where I'm a little bit intimidated by oncologists and people in these like high medical, like <laughs> clinical mm-hmm. positions. And the truth is, you know, they're just people. And I think this is like a really nice way to break down those barriers and make it more of an equal, an equal partnership. But I think, I think, yes, I have a lot more interest from, from advocates, but I do have a lot from researchers as well. That's great. That's great. Um, I am personally very excited about this program. I think it sounds amazing. And I will be in San Antonio uh, this December. So I'm definitely oh, good. keeping you an eye out. Okay. <laughs> I would love to. I would absolutely love to. Um, to kind of wrap up. So you have this amazing program. You're living your amazing life. What do you want people to know about metastatic breast cancer? Because I think there's a lot of different emotions, different viewpoints out there, and you are living with it. So what do you want people to know? I think what I like, I want people to know that there is a spectrum of metastatic. Like a lot of people have this idea that um, they see on TV somebody that gets diagnosed with metastatic cancer and, they, and they're on their deathbed and they're dying. Mm-hmm. And that is true for some people. That's not untrue. But there's also this other world of, of patients that are really living their lives. And, and yeah, we're doing it with anxiety and side effects. Um, but we are, you know, we are out there traveling. And I mean, some of us are running half marathons, not me, others. But, you know, some people are really, really just trying to live their life as normally as they possibly can. So I don't want to scare people, especially early stage breast cancer patients. I know it must be terrifying to think that your that you know your cancer could progress and become metastatic. I know that that must be a terrifying feeling. I personally don't know anything about early stage because I was diagnosed metastatic from the beginning. So it's all that I've known. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I think that it's just important to see that there is, you know, there are many different types of people with this disease. And so 
you really can't, you'll never be alone. There will always be somebody that can be matched to your specific, you know, age or diagnosis or treatment plan or what you're feeling in that moment. There's so many of us, unfortunately, there's so many of us that you're never alone. And, um, you know, I was, I was very afraid to get involved, uh, go to a support group or do any kind of advocacy when I first was diagnosed, because I was, I had that idea of a very sick patient and I was afraid to see people that were dying. You know, I didn't, I was really afraid and I thought, well, I I don't know if I want to, I'm not ready for that. But the truth is I've met so many wonderful people in this community and they've become my close dear friends. And, you know, I just, I'm just so grateful that I have them in my life. And so I just, I just want people to know, yes, there's a spectrum and no, you're not alone. That's That's very good advice. Christine, thank you so much. Um, This has been really amazing, and I cannot wait to see this, this GRASP program grow. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the BreastCancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember... You can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.